1978, 600 uh, people received invitations to a tea party at Montana State at the Student Union Building. Uh, the invitation was written over a decade before they were mailed out. Uh, Cushman had written them uh, in anticipation of her death, and the note said, I know I've lived on borrowed time for years, and while I still have the strength and can write my own adieu, I want to leave this message for you in my own handwriting so you can take me off your Christmas list, which really summarizes a lot of her personality. Um, the list was extensive because of her lengthy career as the poultry specialist for the Extension Service in Montana, serving from July of 1922 to January of 1955. She was the first woman in the United States to hold that position in the Extension Service. In fact, she was the first woman in the Extension Service to be a topic specialist outside of home demonstration. Um, it's not unusual that it would be with poultry. Rural women had always worked with poultry, often in charge of uh, turkeys and chickens and eggs. Um, but what was unusual about this position is that she had a position of authority within the extension service. She was a professional woman in agriculture. Uh, you can also describe her as a new woman, so a lot when you think about the new woman of the 19-teens and 1920s, a lot of people imagine the flappers and, and uh, suffragettes, but there also were, were other aspects of the new woman um, that I think that Harriet Cushman really embodies. Um, she received a degree in chemistry from Cornell University in 1914. Uh, she had economic independence with her career in the extension service. Uh, she traveled by herself, both for work and, and on her own. She never married. Uh, she enjoyed the outdoors. And these are some of my favorite photographs I've had of her. Um, so anytime she had any kind of a break from her job, which was not often, this woman worked a lot. I mean, every time I get tired, I think of how much she worked and uh, puts me to shame. Um, but she uh, had a group of, of women. A lot of them were also professionals at Montana State. So many of them working on the home demonstration side of extension. Um, so they would spend every amount of time they could hiking. This was on the beginning of a 20 plus mile hike. Um, they, they had certain uh, areas that they liked to camp. There were certain cabins that they would go to. Uh, this was her, her circle of friends that she did a lot of her outdoor activities with, and probably my favorite photograph was on one of her, one of her hikes. Um, so although that she, she really does embody a lot of these ideas of, of a new woman, there were some areas where she was more hesitant to kind of defy typical gender roles. Um, she understood her crowd, who she was working with, and believed that she had to kind of meet a lot of those gendered ex expectations. But before I get into more of that, I wanted to give a little bit of an overview of, of Cushman herself. So she was born in Birmingham, Alabama in 1890, uh, but grew up in Jamestown, New York. She was the daughter of John and Margaret Cushman. She was the oldest of two, so that's her and her younger sister, Vivian. Uh, she did not grow up in an atmosphere that focused on agriculture. Uh, her dad was a jeweler and a watchmaker. They enjoyed poetry, they talked about literature. I mean, she is not coming from any kind of a, of a rural background. Uh, she, her parents encouraged her to go on to university. 
So she initially went to Mount Holyoke College, which was renowned for its emphasis on education for women. She initially wanted to get her degree in English. She loved to write, she loved poetry, um, but she did not excel in her English classes. Uh, so her instructors encouraged her to take an avenue where she was showing a lot of, of promise, and that was in science. So she transferred to Cornell and received her degree in um, bacteriology in 1914. Uh, not a typical degree. And chemistry, chemistry and bacteriology. She graduated from Cornell in 1914, which ironically was the same year that the Smith-Lever Act was passed, which creates the extension service. Um, but she doesn't find her way there right away. Uh, she does struggle to find work with her degree. Uh, she definitely didn't want just a job. She wanted a career. So after um, a series of jobs, she finds herself at a training <coughs> school in Vineland, New York. Um, during World War I, there were a lot of men who had to leave for, uh, for the war, so she was put in charge of the poultry farm at this um, training school in Vineland, New York. Um, ironically, she got, just got out of the influenza talk, and she came down with influenza and was in the hospital for several months. And while she was there, she kind of tried to think about what her next move was going to be. Did she want to continue with this poultry work, which she enjoyed, but she didn't really have any formal training? Or did she want to go back and kind of brush up on her chemistry and search for a job in chemistry? Um, she decided on poultry. So after she got better, got out of the hospital, she went to Rutgers, where she met a group of extension workers. And when she was there, um, she was really intrigued with the work that they did. She liked the idea of being able to use her degree, be able to, to put that to use, but more importantly for her, she would be able to work with people. And that's what she really found interesting about extension work, that she would be able to have a balance of both. So being the determined person that she was, once she decided that the extension service work was what she wanted to do, she wrote to every single state and asked for a job with the extension service. Only one state replied, and that was Idaho, uh, which she did take the job. She was offered a position as the 4-H leader. So she worked with the 4-H for, for a while. Um, through a series of events, she, she becomes the assistant poultry specialist in Boise. Um, that position was cut, so then she was on the market again, and she finally found her way to Montana three years later and became the poultry specialist. Throughout her 33-year career, there was only one other woman who was poultry specialist, and that was Cora Cook of Minnesota. Um, she writes a lot in her letters home to her parents, and, and sometimes even in her annual reports, that uh, you know, Cora, Cora and her developed a, quite a strong friendship, being the only two women in a, in a man's world. And she said in her report in 1938, that we make up in quality what we lack in quantity. So they weren't, they weren't going to let the fact that they were the only women get them down, that's for sure. Um, but again, she did understand that she was usually the only woman in the room when, in dealing with the extension service. Um, she never really bothered her on a professional level. Um, she felt like she was their equal. She had definitely built up a reputation by the end of her career. Um, but when it came to more social interaction, she was much more kind of aware of, of gendered expectations. In particular, her appearance when she worked with rural people, um, people across the state. 
Um, she feels that her acceptance of their status quo made it easier for me to relate to my rural people. Frequently, they commented that they feel comfortable with me since I was just common folk as they were. Also, they liked the way I dressed. I never looked as if I had just stepped out of a bandbox. I always wore wash dresses and added chicken apron, sort of a smock when working around the flocks. And why didn't I wear coveralls? I queried some of my people about such a costume. Unanimously, they maintained that a decent woman wore skirts. <laughs> so that's her typical uh, chicken smock apron that she would wear when she was out in the field. Uh, again, she believed that she was very much accepted by her peers um, and, and very much accepted by the people that she worked with. And, and one thing that she would do um, definitely would be to um, ingratiate herself. Uh, and, one, and, and this definitely would have gotten me on her side as well. Um, when she would be working with people and there was time that she had to wait, whether that be stopping at a ranch or waiting for a crowd to assemble or when staying for a meal, I went to the house with the wife and the county agent, followed the men to do chores or take care of some of the ranch problem. I saw some unironed clothes in the basket, I would volunteer to iron them. But one thing that she really did focus on throughout her life was her education. That was something that she really valued. It was something that her parents valued and encouraged, and so she was always looking for a career. But given the time frame and given the fact that there weren't a lot of professional women, especially professional women in agriculture, she always felt out of place with other women, socially speaking. Um, she didn't really have um, a, a strong grasp of her own femininity, um, in, in the way to be able to relate to other women. One letter that she wrote to her parents, she said, I think if I ever get married, I will make a woman out of my daughter so she will enjoy talking to women. Will enjoy department stores and shopping and in fact be feminine. I may even introduce her to powdering her nose. I am glad my mother did just as she did and that I've gone on and finished the proposition just as I had. But it makes me feel sort of like a strange and natural critter when it comes to fitting in with women. Being that she was a pretty prominent woman in Bozeman, she was well known throughout the community through her, her work, um, she would often get invited to a lot of social engagements, including um, a, a charity bridge party in 1926. But again, she never really felt like she truly fit in. So seldom that I attend truly feminine functions that this was quite a marvel to me. It is funny to be a woman nearly 36 and yet never be counted as a woman in any community. I don't know what I would truly do if I were to be just a wife in any community. She liked the idea of marriage, but she didn't necessarily like the idea of being tied down to one person. She thought it would be in some ways a loss of her independence. Um, when someone asked her why she never got married, she answered, well, I just never got around to it. <laughs> And when you look at her work schedule, you can understand that, too. She did express interest in marriage in her younger years. In fact, she did have one male suitor when she was at Cornell who actually wrote to her dad and asked for her hand in marriage. I find her dad's advice really interesting. Uh, she told her to take my advice and don't get your head turned by mere men. So <laughs> stay focused on your career, honey, was his message to her. Um, she talks quite frequently about the fact that she was much more comfortable around men when it came to being able to talk about um, anything intellectual. Uh, she preferred to listen to men and that this sort of preference sort of stunts me from daring to marry. I would only have one man to talk to then. 
that would cause the rest of my associates to be women, and I'm not sure that would make me happy. So the idea of marriage to her meant a loss of that freedom, that opportunity to talk to many men about different topics. So she said if, if, if one man's love would be, wondered if one man's love would be satisfying. It is terribly spoiling for a woman to grow up and be independent. She is sure of her own livelihood. Then she can choose from her various friends for different wants. It might give you a glimpse of why it's hard for the modern businesswoman to marry. I feel my greatest duty is to make something of myself, and as time goes, I realize I think a great deal of a great many of my friends, and yet I don't think I care to give up my freedom for any of them. So her focus was on her career. So that's what I want to spend the rest of the talk today, is looking at the uh, various areas of focus she had um, as the poultry specialist. So as poultry specialist, her main job was to develop and disseminate information about poultry across the state. So she's the one who has to develop all the programs for the county agents to then take to, to their people. And she maintained a, a pretty varied poultry program throughout the time. Um, some of that is not just in the demonstrations that she created. Uh, she also wrote extensively. I mean, she wrote hundreds of bulletins and columns um, for the Montana Farmer Stockman. And she took that information across the state. She averaged over 100 days in the field. I think the top day, the top number of days in the field was in the 1930s. She had 262 days in the field that year. Uh, she traveled on average 16,000 miles a year. Most of that by car, but she also took the train a lot. And by the end of her career, she was really excited to take the plane. So. Uh, she did have limited training when she began her career in 1922, um, but she definitely, in a very short amount of time, was able to build a reputation. And she worked really hard to learn. Um, she made it her, her top priority. Um, as far as building her poultry career and, and poultry pro program, she talks about this a lot in her annual reports. And one of my favorite descriptions comes in, 1920, in 1935, where she's described, she has a narrative at the beginning of her annual report, and she refers to the poultry program as a quilt, and that it was no longer the crazy quilt haphazardly thrown together as when she first arrived, but one that showed a definite pattern that correlated with the other pieces. She said some programs were revamped from old garments, and some were new and shiny, all working together to build a state poultry comforter. So that's how she viewed a lot of the 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 comfort and, and aid that poultry could bring people. But it really was through her innovation and tenacity that helped build that poultry program. Uh, I think a lot of her personality and her ability to connect with people definitely helped build a strong poultry program. When she arrived in 1922 and she surveyed the poultry conditions, she thought that there really were two main areas of concern, um, poor production and poor marketing. So that's really where she focused a lot of her attention, especially in the first decade that she was there. She said poor production was due to the woeful lack of knowledge of feeding, housing, and general management. So that was kind of one, one vein of her, her focus. So she developed a lot of programs to address that. One was a demonstration farm program. This had been initiated earlier by the previous poultry specialist, um, but it was more of an egg-laying contest and she believed that this had to be revamped and kind of reorganized to, to focus more on providing a program that would bring a lot of knowledge and techniques to the people. So she said, especially in the, in the hard, um, 
economic times that Montana was having at the time that farmers needed help, they didn't need a contest. And they wouldn't buy into a contest, but they would buy into a program that would provide them the tools to be successful. So the demonstration farms then became a key component to her poultry program. So to participate, people had to agree that they would um, use, oops, let's go back, that they would use the um, university directions. So this was all coming from the scientific ideas of what was the best new methods in poultry husbandry. So they would have to agree to use the new methods and to record it. And that was one of the biggest challenges, was convincing people to take the time to write down all of the information so they can then send it back to Cushman and um, the people in, in Bozeman to be able to go through and analyze the material. She referred to them as cooperators because she believed that they had to agree to cooperate and feel like they were really a, a, a huge contributor to this program. So they weren't just just filling out the paperwork, they were really the heart and soul of making any kind of a, a, a change and effect in poultry practices. Um, <clears throat> some of that then meant that farmers had to, um, poultry farmers had to really provide a good foundation of knowledge. And that was one thing that she believed was missing, is that a lot of people who were raising poultry were new to it and they didn't really understand kind of the, the basics of it. So a couple of things that she saw as kind of fundamental were the, um, the practice of, of the castration of the roosters and culling or um, you know being able to divide the fox and, and getting out the, the weaker stock. Um, it was a difficult challenge at first to get poultry farmers to consistently do these kinds of things. Uh, but she found pride in the fact that within a few years, after doing demonstrations across the state and providing people with the information, that farmers who had come to meetings five years ago to either marvel at the practice or scoff at it, now mention whether they have or have not culled as they might whether they have or have not harvested. That it became such an accepted and fundamental practice that everybody was doing it, and it was seen as an important part of it. She did refer to initially the project as plotty and unspectacular. It's not like culling your flocks was something that was really revolutionary. Um, but when you look at the impact that it had for the poultry farms, um, one county agent in Flathead County said that it was possibly the greatest influence on the poultry business. Um, and also the connection to those uh, people she referred to as the cooperators who really elevated what this program could do. So it was through the careful analysis and summary uh, that farmers were receiving from um, Cushman and other county agents, people were really starting to see the benefit of doing this. So much so that they began to initiate meetings on their own. So poultry farmers would contact other poultry farmers and talk about what they were writing in their books, what they noticed, um, and they were doing that completely without any prompting um, they saw that this was a key benefit to them. So that became, you know, another kind of um, way that Cushman saw that she was making some progress. You know, to see that kind of self-initiation uh, of meetings between poultry, poultry farmers. Another thing that she initiated, and again linked to this, these demonstration farms, 
uh, was the creation of um, better poultry houses. So one thing that she wanted to see was um, the remodeling or even building of new poultry houses. Part of what she saw is that many of the houses were pretty dilapidated. There wasn't very good ventilation. Um, there, there really needed to be some updating. She actually even devised a whole new model that she referred to as the Montana Poultry House. She investigated and, and studied the different types of breeds of chickens that were in Montana. She looked at the weather patterns. Um, she really tried to understand all of the different things and components that would go into making a good chicken house. Um, and she put all of that together into a design and then took that to the people. And um, it was pretty accepted. So she would have these demonstrations where the community would be invited and it'd be kind of like a good old barn raising type of idea where people would come build the, the chicken house together and then people could take the plants home and build, the, build them themselves. Um, this became a pretty popular activity. Part of that is because she understood the financial situation of a lot of these chicken farmers. They didn't have the money to build something brand new. So a lot of the plan looked at how they could remodel or revamp an existing chicken house and reuse those materials. So taking um, an existing chicken house, kind of deconstructing it, and using those materials to build a new one. She took great pride that she was able to boss men around. <laughs> she wrote home and, and that the women enjoyed watching her boss the men around. Um, but that she also said that she became a pretty good carpenter as well. Um, that she, she said, I can handle carpenter tools pretty well and boss better. So she did like that. Um, but you know, again, this was something that becomes readily accepted. And people began seeking out the new plans to better their chicken houses because they saw that th this was a benefit um, to their operation. Once they had um, better records and they have better chicken houses, uh, Cushman also then began looking at breed improvement. They needed to have a better flock of chickens as well. Um, she said initially when she began talking to chicken farmers that there was not the best response. It was pretty half-hearted, she said. Um, but as they began to see the benefits, and you, you had visitors from the USDA coming and showing them the, the benefits, there were more people who bought into it. Part of it also was seeing results. I mean, that definitely was something that Cushman was good at. Um, she began talking to, to farmers about needing to test for polarium disease, which is an egg-transmitted infection, um, although it can be transmitted either directly or indirect contact between infected birds. So if you have any kind of infected chicks, that could spread through your flock pretty fast. Um, so a very high mortality rate, um, she was able to show them that through a simple test, blood test, that you'd be able to call out those who were reactors. So she spent a lot of time throughout the 20s and 30s showing and, and helping with polarium testing. And again, because of her research and her knowledge and her ability to communicate with people, um, the demonstration farms really picked up on this, the people who were part of those demonstration farms. And those who participated saw a significant drop in reactors in their flocks. So within the course of a year, so from 1933 to 1934, she reported that there was a, a drop in flocks from 12 to 15 percent reactors to 1 percent or, or less. So that definitely was real results. And then taking that information, 
She then had to convince all the local hatcheries that they needed to have um, chicks that had been tested, quality chicks. Um, the dependable hatchery in Red Lodge questioned her and, and really debated if, if farmers were going to demand on tested chicks because it would be more expensive, more time consuming. Um, but when she returned later, the hatchery had abandoned the idea of using eggs from any untested flock or even doing any custom hatching because all the orders had come back for chicks from tested stock. So the farmers were demanding it. So they had to, if they want to sell them, they got to do it. Uh, the Billings Hatchery was not as willing to make changes. Uh, they were only willing to do as much as they had to to get by. Um, and Cushman made the comment that she believed they were only making the jester cooperating in order to get better prices for their chicks. Um, but she had no real authority to force them to do this. Um, what she did have, however, was um, clout. And she did have a reputation. So when she couldn't, you know, force the issue legally, what she could do is inform them that the extension service would be withdrawing its help and cooperating uh, with the cooperating agency. So if they wanted her to validate that hatchery, they had better change the practices. So, um, and I have to go really quickly through the end because I didn't realize. I get talking about Cushman, she's so awesome. Um, she also spent a lot of time on the, on the seven reservations. She really enjoyed working with the Native Americans. So all of the, all the programs that she developed throughout the rest of the state, she's doing the same thing on the reservations. Uh, and we see a, a, a huge increase in participation and, and um, Native Americans using um, poultry flocks as a way to make a living. Um, she even gets adopted into um, the Blackfeet tribe. I will quickly go through marketing. So, turkey marketing and egg marketing were, were other two areas that Cushman really focused on. Because again, she saw two key areas, poor production, poor marketing. Um, one of the key areas that she saw as, as problematic with marketing um, for turkeys, a lot of it was distance. That, you know, being able to, to make it to uh, national markets. Um, so part of what she was trying to do was to make it more cost-effective for turkey producers. So she, with the help, with the encouragement of the um, director of the Extension Service in Montana, devised the first turkey cooperative in Montana. So she, again, when she arrived in 1922, basically put out a call to all county agents if there's anyone who was interested in trying to start a turkey cooperative. Um, the county agent um, from Conrad was the only one who contacted her initially, and so the first efforts at a turkey cooperative were out of Conrad. Um, it was very successful, and then within a few years, we see a huge increase in the number of turkey cooperatives in Montana. A lot of it during the Depression years, we see a sharp increase. Um, a lot of that was because of the economic situation, and cattle and wheat prices had plummeted. So turkeys were a way to make a living. Um, Notice a sharp decline after World War II, and that's because wheat and cattle prices come back. Um, but during the Depression years, um, it certainly was something that was very valuable for, for turkey farmers was the cooperatives. So the whole idea was to be able to pool their resources to get a better price um, from the, for the turkeys. So this is some of the distribution centers where, where farmers would bring in their turkeys. Women were heavily involved. Um, 
they had they were in charge of a lot of the, the turkey cooperatives. Um, Cushman herself received a lot of recognition for this very first cooperative. Um, she had articles as far as ways Australia. She was invited to be the one of the key speakers at the World Poultry Congress that was held in Ottawa, Canada. Um, one of the keynote speakers, which was the main job, was to talk about turkey cooperatives. Um, but it really does change lives for people in Montana during this time. You know, at a time of a, of a severe economic depression, turkeys were a way for people to be able to, to make a living. I have great pictures. Joey, I need two more minutes. <laughs> The other thing that she focused on um, were, was egg marketing, and Mary, here is a good thing to say about Butte. Butte's been kind of hit hard today. I know. Right? So unfair. But Butte, during the 1920s, was the innovator to be able to try to get better eggs in Montana. Uh, in the early 1920s, uh, Montana was importing over 50% of its eggs, most of the eggs coming from the West Coast hatcheries. Um, so that was another kind of area that Cushman focused on was trying to improve the quality of eggs in Montana to be competitive. So she worked with women from Butte, uh, the women from the women's club in Butte actually contacted her because they wanted to be able to improve the product. And it was through the, the women in Butte's efforts that we see this larger campaign to have a better market for eggs. And they hosted... Um, the first egg show in Montana in Butte. So that was one of the hens. They they showed the, the number of, of eggs that she was able to that hen was able to produce. They even timed it so there would be a fresh batch of chicks that would hatch during the egg show. Uh, she even devised. Um, sorry, I'm trying to cut in my head. Um, one issue that they that they tried to do to improve the quality was was to candle the eggs to be able to prove that they were quality. So in order to get the the standard the stamp of approval to become the Montana Extra Select brand, those eggs had to be candled. They had to show that it was of a certain quality. But she even um, went to a patent office and she created a special carton for the Montana Select eggs. Um, so that the Montana consumers knew they bought uh, Montana Extra Selects carton of eggs. They knew that not only would it be as good as those other eggs coming from the coast, but it would be superior quality. So she was really trying to market eggs to show um, that it could be done in Montana and that it was um, something that was beneficial to the consumers. She even was able to push through an egg law that would focus on grading. Um, and I'll wrap up to my conclusion. So even though she didn't start out as someone who was very knowledgeable in poultry, she certainly becomes someone who was a prominent figure in the field. So after she retired, she received uh, numerous accolades and numerous awards. Um, she was given an honorary life membership in the American Institute of Poultry in 1959. In 1963, she was awarded an honorary doctorate of agriculture by Montana State University and she received a Distinguished Service Ruby Award from the Epsilon Sigma Phi, which is the National Honorary Fraternity for Extension Service Workers, uh, also in, in 1969. So when she started out, she was worried if she would be big enough for the job, if she could do the job as well as she wanted to. 
and she ended up being very much a prominent figure in the field of poultry.